Hello again, and welcome back to the Aurelius Podcast. I'm Zach Naylor, CEO and co-founder here at Aurelius. This time around, we had the pleasure of having Aaron Walter on our show. He is the Vice President of Design Education at Envision, a company I suspect nearly, if not all of you have heard of and probably used their products. Envision is a digital product design platform, helping people like us create better experiences in the products and services we create for our customers. Aaron and his team have been doing a lot of research and study of what makes successful design teams tick. Everything from tools to processes to organizational structure. In this episode, he chats with us about some of the biggest key findings they uncovered and how some of the most popular companies like Target, Spotify, Netflix, and Google are operating very successful design practices at scale. It's probably no surprise that our discussion led to how those most successful companies all share a common thread of being better connected to their customers. We talked a lot about that and how to do user research, share that information across teams and departments to ultimately inform better design and product decisions at your company. This episode with Aaron covered a lot of topics and very practical insights all in one discussion, and I think you'll really enjoy it. If you want to get the most out of your user research and customer feedback, you should give Aurelius a try. Joseph and I built our very own user research and insights tool for folks just like you and I to help them add, tag, organize, search, and share all of their key findings and insights in one place so that they too can make better informed design and product decisions just like we spoke about with Aaron and those very successful companies in this episode. We offer a 14-day free trial with every feature available, so head over to our website to sign up. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you think. That's AureliusLab.com, A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. All right, here's our chat with Aaron Walter. Welcome to Aurelius Podcast, episode 20 with Aaron Walter. He is the Vice President of Design Education at Envision. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're very excited to have you. Um, And for anybody who... I would be shocked to hear does not know about Envision or what you do. Uh, give us a little bit of background about your role there and kind of what Envision does. So Envision is a, is a platform for creative exchange. It, it's a place where product designers and agencies can uh, design, uh, prototype, put designs in front of real users and get feedback um, and connect with developers and various other things. Um, and so my role at Envision is around design practices. So we're, we're of the mind that just because you own a hammer doesn't make you a master carpenter. Um, you have to have the skills to be able to do that uh, well. And so we invest a lot of time and energy in supporting the design community, uh, communicating the design practices that we see with our customers. We've got you know, millions of customers and uh, relationships with thousands of design teams around the world um, in pretty much any market you could you could think of. And so we end up studying design teams, seeing what works, what breaks, um, and we start to discover these patterns of things that are very effective. And so my team, our, our focus is on, on synthesizing those stories and um, those, those practices that will help 
companies succeed through design so they can start to invest in it, think it, uh, about how design is a strategic lever for improving um, their position in the market um, and just to be a more successful company. Absolutely. And very, very noble, very needed work. And I don't think that anybody would disagree something many of us are hungry for. Interesting that you bring that up, too, because I think much of that work has been evidenced and manifested in one of your most recent projects, I, I assume, in the Design Genome Project, I believe, that you yeah. recently launched. Yeah, the Design Genome Project came out um, very recently, and it is the um, uh, it's a culmination of months of research. Uh, and the general idea is, you know, what does good look like? What, what does a high-functioning team look like? Um, and what do they do? How are they organized? What are the unique habits to them? And then what are the things that might be common to, to other um, companies as well? Um, tool stack, other things that might give us insight into how to run a more high-functioning design team. And so we study companies like Google, uh, Pinterest, Shopify, Nationwide, IBM, IDEO, Herman Miller, Target, uh, many, many more. And we're looking across different market sectors because, um, you know, so often we look to the tech sector for inspiration of, you know, I want to be like Google. And um, that's great, but not everybody can um, work that way. So how does a nationwide or a target solve that problem? Um, and, and it's just a fascinating, it was a, a fascinating project. Um, we've released uh, five reports. Um, we're about to release another one. Uh, tomorrow, actually. Uh, so I, by the time people listen to this, it will already be out, but that one is on Google. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a lot of interesting insights about, you know, organizational models that are common. Um, and I think some of the things that we think are really critical to success, uh, maybe are not as, as critical as, as we once thought. Mm -hmm. Well, so that's, that's a fun point to bring up. And uh... I mean, so it sounds like you spoke with a bunch of companies nobody's ever heard of, uh, so we don't know anything about their work, <laughs> right? Uh, so, they, I mean, everybody wants to kind of work at these places. Everybody looks to their work as uh, at least what many of us would consider shining examples of successfully design-led or design-infused organizations. Mm -hmm. I like where you ended with that, which is there are probably a lot of things that we maybe get ourselves worked up over that are not as important to the success of those teams. I'm curious, could you share a few of those that you found through this project? So the origin of the project was a conversation with our CEO, um, uh, Clark Valberg was, you know, curious, like, what if we could, you know, understand org charts uh, of a lot of different companies and see how they're organized? Because that's often the topic of conversation when we talk to design leaders. Uh, how should we organize? What's the most effective way? Um, and we went into that project kind of thinking that this was going to be the, the heart and soul that would give us the most insight. But what we found was, as we talked to um, various companies, that uh, the org chart was so um, squishy, you know, that it was, uh, for big companies, it was very hard to pin down. That was not, uh, you know, if it's a really big company like an IBM or a Google, um, the org chart was not consistent throughout. So it'd be different, you know, the hierarchy of, of uh, 
individuals and, and how teams are organized, it might be different. So it's just very hybrid uh, based on product lines, um, acquisitions where you brought in different teams that might have worked in different ways. Um, and, you know, there were, it was not uncommon for us to get a phone call two weeks after doing a bunch of research where the people would say like, hey, all that stuff we told you about the org design, just throw it out the window because we just reorged again. So there's just this constant reorganization. And so what we found was that the organizational structure was uh, not, not a, uh, the secret sauce, but knowing the models that are out there and how to use them and the pros and cons, that was the real key. Um, and then there's also some additional color around like surviving organizational shifts. Because if, uh, if, if any of your listeners have ever been through a reorg, it is a painful, scary, fear-inducing process because that it feels like, is my role being devalued? Will I continue to have rewarding work? Um, how do I fit into the grand scheme of things? Do I still have a future? That's what a reorg does to people. And I think that that, especially in the tech industry, starts to wear on people that we're constantly going through this roller coaster where the, the floor drops the, you know, over and over again and we have to readjust and um, get our bearings with the world. But um, so the, the organizational models that uh, the, they, they basically boil down to three um, types, this a centralized model. And so in a large enterprise, they often call that a center of excellence. Um, and then and it's also called an agency model. Um, and then you have a decentralized or embedded model where we have cross-functional teams. It's what we're familiar with, uh, with agile uh, practices where we've got, you know, uh, a bunch of engineers, a product manager, and, uh, you know, a designer, which is typical. In these design-led companies, we found that the ratios were much more positive, and we found this golden ratio, uh, one, three, five. One project manager, product manager, product owner, um, three designers, and five engineers. And so um, that, that's a really key finding um, from my perspective because what, what I see in a lot of big companies where design is not uh, a priority, you get a designer and like 75 engineers. Um, and what happens in that situation is the, the values of engineers are what drive the product. And um, it's not, you know, not to denigrate the values of engineers because they have important values that we need. But it's just simply that we have an imbalance, um, that if everything is quantitative, we never think about what is qualitative. And those two things um, are needed to create really successful products, that it, you know, product needs to feel good to use. It's interesting and engaging. Um, what are the qualities that make it sticky? Um, usually that's the sort of thing that uh, is the domain of a designer, that um, efficient workflow, et cetera. Um, so, so this, the, I mentioned a centralized, a decentralized or embedded, and then a hybrid model where, um, and that's often influenced by things like design systems where, uh, a hybrid model is you might have a team that is a, a, a nucleus and that might be, uh, like Spotify, the, the, the team that manages their design system is called glue. Um, and then you've got all these embedded teams and different product lines that come back um, maybe not necessarily everybody, but there are guilds that come back to that, that nucleus to talk about design, do design reviews, um, talk about the design system and how it should evolve. Um, 
So these three different models, uh, basically what we found was that it was about 30, 33% per, per model. So it's not like we saw a huge skew in one direction or, or the other. Um, and what we saw was that, you know, each one of these models, there are pros and cons. Um, and it's just about knowing when to apply which model based on what the company goals are, what the team goals are, and, uh, you know, trying to connect the way that your team works to those things. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, the fact that you found this seemingly golden ratio of, you know, Hey, to be a design led organization, and I don't mean to oversimplify this, so keep me honest to be a design led organization, you need more good designers and you need to place those people in a appropriate equilibrium for lack of a better term. Yeah. That's just, other I think that's just table stakes. I mean, how can you um, expect to, to do something really well if you don't have the staff uh, and the expertise on that particular area? Sure. Sure. Okay. So this is fascinating work and I actually want to take a step back and, and call it for what I think it is. This very much sounds like, a research project to me. Oh, it's a totally user, research. A customer research project. Yeah. So I, yeah. you know, given that a, a central theme to what we do and talk about is research that informs design and product strategy, talk to me a little bit about how you and your team decided to set up this research. So what problem was Envision trying to solve in gathering this information and making some kind of sense of it, right? So our, the problem we're trying to solve is that we have so many customers who, uh, with whom we have relationships and we have conversations, not just about product things. Uh, I mean, that's interesting, but uh, it, we have a lot of conversations about practice things. And it's not uncommon for a large enterprise company to say, you guys talk to all, all the folks. How do other people do this? How do they solve this problem? We get that question every day, all day, uh, because of the space that we're in. We're in this unique position to see across the industry, digital product design, um, and how does that manifest itself? How does it shake out in fidelity, in you know, uh, uh, a pharmaceutical company, in like a tech company, et cetera? Um, all these, all these different types of companies. And so the Design Genome Project is trying to answer that question, um, you know, synthesize the findings. Yeah, we talked to a lot of people, but what if we put some structure around this and we really started to nail down, this is how companies function. Um, and this, this is what will lead to success. So we could, um, you know, make that more accessible for a lot of people to, to learn from. Awesome. Okay, so you've got the question. And right, that's where we often start with trying to, to do research or understand customers. Talk to me a little bit about how you employed research methods and how you went about, the, how did you collect the data? How did you make sense of it to come to these, to these findings, which are pretty pivotal, uh, pretty pivotal, particularly across industry, right? I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. So we had we went into the project with a core set of questions. We there are some clear areas that we wanted to understand uh, because we you know talked to a lot of people. Um, ratios comes up all the time, so we knew we wanted to ask about that. We knew that we wanted to ask about things like what's the the top ranked designer in the organization because that 
is generally uh, a leading indicator of the investment or the culture in the company and its relationship to design. If you've got someone in the C-suite who is a designer, has a design background, probably means that you take this stuff seriously. Um, or if your, your top designer is a manager, that probably says something else. Um, so there were some questions that were very um, you know, obvious that we wanted to ask. Um, you know, in terms of methodologies, it was uh, a lot of, it's, it's all qual almost all qualitative research, um, you know, exploratory research, talking to multiple people from these companies to get different perspectives. Um, that, um, that helps tremendously because one perspective we get from an individual might be different from another. So we have to sort of corroborate or build a body of evidence of, of the behaviors and, and the way that the, that culture operates. Um, so, and, and you're right, it is a research project. I used to run research teams, have founded some research teams. And so this is, you know, th this is the sort of thing that I love to do. Uh, I like to ask questions, kind of go deeper and, um, try to figure out what's happening behind the scenes, read between the lines. And so part of this project was to identify the superpower of the company. What is their, their superpower? Um, and we started to discover that by, um, you know, investigating uh, outside of talking to people, but just like the, the company itself. Uh, Netflix is a very interesting company. Um, their uh, their uh, superpower is around freedom and not being pinned into a particular process, not being pinned into a particular tool stack. And that includes design systems. So they're one of the few companies that, that we've talked to that... At, at this scale, they, they're not invested in a design system. Almost every other company, they're like super hyper-focused about, you know, design system and operationalizing design. But uh, Netflix, they've, they've changed their model multiple times. Um, and I think that that, that, that culture um, uh, brings in the idea of flexibility and being adaptable. And if you, their, their perception is that if they had a design system, that they would be too pinned in. Um, so we start to see what makes them unique, what makes them special, um, and pull that out because although that may not necessarily be actionable of, okay, I, I like this superpower trait. Now I'm going to bring that into my company. That might not be practical, but, um, it does give some insight that can, um, inform others. Okay. So then, you know, you're talking about design teams and trying to, or more specifically companies in what their superpowers are to then you know, understand that as a means to what, right? Because those don't, it doesn't sound like those necessarily translate uh, across industry. Is that right? Um, some of them do very well and some of them don't. And, um, you know, I think that regardless, it still gives us a sense of what is possible. Um, so the idea of, you know, be, having freedom and flexibility of choosing, um, the way that a team works or the way that a particular team is organized instead of having one, one ring to rule them all, you know, um, that, that's a different model that can be very effective. Um, and then some superpowers like with Google and this insatiable curiosity and the thirst for knowledge and connection to the customer, um, that definitely is a superpower that I, I do think is something that, that can translate. You know, we, we heard from them that their executives uh, travel to 
remote locations around the world so they can immerse themselves in culture. They don't just want to, you know, talk to, um, uh, talk to somebody in um, Sri Lanka. They want to learn about their poetry. They want to hear stories. They want to visit homes. They want to see what devices they're using. I mean, they're really immersing themselves um, in other cultures to try to build better products that will work for a lot of different types of people. Um, and that is, that's, uh, it's a cultural thing. It is, uh, it's not just a small group of people. It is uh, from top to bottom, this is the way that, that Google works, that they are always learning and always curious. That is, I think, really, really powerful, particularly the one thing you said that the theme that is shared across all of these companies is the understanding and application of that, uh, of people. I, I can't remember exactly how you worded it, but that was the thing that, that stuck out to me uh, that was most sort of pivotal uh, based on what you learned. I mean, with, with Google, that, that customer centricity. Um, and if, if there is a common thread in all of the, um, all of the companies that we talk to, uh, pretty diverse group, uh, group of companies and group of people with very different markets and often very different goals. But the one common thread is the connection to the customer and customer centricity, knowing who that customer is, feeling a connection to them, feeling a sense of empathy. All these things that are, uh, you know, no brainers for for designers and, and researchers. Uh, but uh, this is something to have that as part of the culture. Um, it really, to me, that's that is a design culture. Is that if it has that close customer connection, um, uh, you know, design is not just about aesthetics. It's about um, solving problems. And if you don't understand the problem space and you don't understand the audience, how can you really? Um, do well in design. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that that's, again, it's, it's one of those things that we believe everybody knows and we believe everybody agrees to, but curiously we find yet many companies who are not there. Right. Mm. And so the, the question begs itself to be asked, Aaron is if, you know, somebody listening to this podcast is not uh, an employee or a designer at one of these hallmark companies how, how do we get there right how do we get to that yeah. connection to the customer and what's what have you found is most important um, maybe even as a first step well so i think that there one there is a uh, misconception that we don't have time to do a bunch of research um and uh to me, that's just a fallacy. You know, this this mantra in in Silicon Valley and tech world, uh, we want to fail fast. And I think in many ways that's uh, so easily misinterpreted. It's not about failing fast. It's about learning fast. It's about um, uh, learning as fast as you can um, about the problem and the customer, um, ideating and getting that in front of the customer to get feedback very quickly knowing that it's not perfect, but we can continue to dial it in. Um, that is what we want to do is to, to dial in instead of uh, waiting for perfection. Um, and so that, that mantra leads us to think that speed is everything, that you know, getting to market very quickly is um, what will lead to success. But um, if you are the fastest runner on the planet, but you are running the race in the wrong direction, 
you are not going to be a successful runner. You will not have too many gold medals uh, hanging around your neck. Um, you, you need speed, but you need trajectory. And research and that connection to the customer is about establishing the trajectory. Uh, what, what should we be investing our time and energy into? Uh, what direction do we go? Absolutely. That's, I could not agree with everything you said any more than I do. It's really funny that you bring up the fail fast, fail often thing because um, funny enough, I was recently a guest on a podcast, so tables were turned there, where I brought up this very same thing, which is you know the fail fast, fail often mantra, I believe has been more erosive to our industry than it has benefited. Now, hear me out on this is the reason why, and I echo a lot of the same thoughts you have, which is, but I, I usually say it in just uh, very quickly to say, if your goal is to fail, you can meet that goal a lot faster than it is to learn, right? And I couldn't agree with you more that the the goal here is to learn, not to fail. Yeah. Um, and I think what a what a wonderful analogy to say you can be the fastest around, <laughs> right? But if you run in the wrong direction, you still lose. And, you know, of course, we've always, we've always heard this referred to as solving the right problem for the wrong people or the wrong problem for the right people. Right. And neither of those actually help you net out in a place where you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. And you asked earlier, Zach, what's the, uh, you know, how, do, how does a, a company or an individual contributor, how do they get into research? How do they, you know, enact this stuff uh, if they're, they're not operating in ideal uh, situation? Um, Jared Spool has a really simple, uh, metric that, that he advises companies, uh, to follow, which is you need two hours of exposure to the customer for every six weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, and if, if everyone in the design team can do that, you can become more customer centric, uh, more connected to the customer, better at solving problems. Now to take that a step further, you could invest more time, say, uh, two hours every four weeks, two hours every three weeks. To take that a step further, you and, and this is where the, the results are, are best because it becomes part of the culture. And that is uh, to not limit that metric to the design team, but uh, apply it across the company. So that means your customer support team, clearly they have exposure to the customer, marketing team, engineers, uh, product, uh, legal, you name it, executive suite, two hours exposure to the customer every six weeks, that goes a long ways to um, establishing a connection, building empathy uh, with the customer uh, and, and, and their, their goals. Yeah. And I've actually heard uh, Jared speak about this and he was a very early guest of our podcast as well. And I know he talked about some related things. I'm curious, have you seen that, you know, in the wild, so to speak, especially talking with a lot of what we would consider very successfully design-led companies? I mean, have you seen that happening or has it manifested in some other way? Have I seen that particular number being tracked? Sure, or something similar. Um, I don't see people necessarily tracking the number, but um, to me, that number is less about, hey, here's a KPI. Some companies need that as a, as a starting point. If you set this as a KPI and stick to that, that's a way to build this into the culture. Um, but I do see companies that, um, that, that are talking to customers on a regular basis, and we often think that's got to be 
something very formal. We've got to line up these very formal conversations, formal usability tests with labs, and you don't need any of that. You, you basically you just need to find people who are using your your stuff, who are paying money for your stuff, and talking to them. So I often recommend people if they feel like I don't know where to start. Um, many large companies are measuring NPS, and I know that NPS is is one of those things that. Uh, people either love it or they hate it. Uh, there's not a whole lot in between. What I do like about NPS, regardless of, of your perspective on, on the value of that number, is that you get a constant stream of feedback coming in from customers and an email address associated with that. So I can go find anybody that is has had a bad experience. They gave us a five. Um, and I can, you know, get them on the phone for 15, 20 minutes to try to learn something about them. Um, I often recommend people talk to uh, any of their customers who just bought the product because that'll tell you a lot about the mindset and the language that leads to making that purchase decision. And anyone who just left, who just quit your company, that'll tell you where you're deficient and what, what holes you need to patch. Sure. Okay, so this is interesting stuff, and... You know, at the end of the day, I guess boiling it down and bringing it back to what I think is the central point of what you're saying, Aaron, and what you found in your research is more successful teams, more successful companies speak with and understand their customers better than less successful companies and teams. That's right. So then, you know, the next question becomes, and you actually started talking about operationalizing design and it's a bit of a trendy term, but I am going to throw it out there and just kind of get your perspective. This idea of design ops, mm -hmm. because it, it now brings us to the question, wonderful, right? Uh, we're all out learning from customers more often uh, with, with greater frequency and maybe even greater depth than we were before. Then we have a data problem. Then we have what some may call an operations problem. I'm curious to hear your take on that. So design ops is, uh, is a nascent um, subfield in the design world, and it finds its origin in um, scale, that design teams that are trying to scale, that are getting the opportunity to scale for the first time because, uh, you know, the company um, culture shifts, uh, maybe an executive values design differently, and so they pony up a bunch of cash and, and um, start to scale the design team. Or, you know, design team organically grows over years. And once you've hit a threshold, you've got, you know, 50 designers on the team. You need some operations to, um, to be efficient because you can't just wing it. Uh, wing it on, you know, tool set you're using, processes, how you interact with other teams and align with other teams. Um, you know, how you see a project through from start to finish without a lot of entropy and, you know, people uh, getting confused, wasting time. So design ops is a very big thing, and it's especially big at big companies that are design forward, um, that, that, that are thinking about how to do this better. Um, now, what goes into design ops um, there's some standard stuff. Um, it, it finds uh, some, it's got some origin stories in agencies and the role of the producer inside of an agency. Um, and a producer is someone who um, sees a project through, clears roadblocks, connects people, uh, brings in the right people at the right times. And when you're operating in a big company, that's 
so critical. Without that, there's just a lot of chaos and confusion. Um, I've seen that firsthand when, when you know, there's just not clarity. Uh, but there's also other components to design ops uh, that that's uh, connected to community. So um, I know that Spotify and Shopify um, both invest a lot in community and building community across these product teams and product lines because they've got multiple locations, uh, products on multiple platforms, and you know different types of products. And yet you've got all these designers who are working on in all these different places. And they've got something to share with one another, something to, um, you know, to, to make the, the work more efficient. Um, you just have to bring them together. So in companies like um, Spotify, for example, they do focus design operations uh, on, on community. Atlassian, they also have um, education, internal education for designers so they can continue to grow. Um, a lot of people d- describe design ops uh, kind of cheekily as the, the care and feeding of, of design, um, do, taking care of budgets and, and all kinds of different things to keep design moving forward. Um, and we've seen that engineers have this, uh, DevOps um, related, different in, in many respects, but it is about how do we scale this, this uh, team, this org uh, more effectively and reduce entropy. So um, uh, there's a subset of design ops, which is research ops. And any listeners who are, are running research teams, you know that like scheduling, um, customer interviews, uh, getting people on the phone, all of those things, analyzing, logging all that data, uh, there's some operations to that, and that takes a lot of effort. So research ops is also emerging as a sub-discipline sub of design ops. Yeah, that's true. And I've recently been introduced to that. In fact, I mean, both by way of our company and the product that we have, but also, you know, the, the Twitter sphere and the blogosphere and the, and the trends that we see coming through there. And that's really curious to me. Also, as it relates to one of your earlier writings, um, the article that you did for A List Apart Connected UX mm-hmm. spoke a little bit about addressing some of what we may now today or recently be calling research ops. But perhaps uh, in a different, and I would argue more important way of this knowledge sharing, this insight sharing across teams back when you were with the, te- uh, with the team at MailChimp. That's right. Yeah, so uh, the crux of that article was just, you know, we, we felt like, you know, it was Groundhog's Day every day that we'd go talk to customers. Uh, we would learn a thing. A month later, we would talk to a different customer and learn something similar, you know, basically the same thing. And without, uh, you know, the collective memory of the organization, um, there was just a lot of wisdom that was lost. And we could never really get a whole lot smarter if we didn't collect that data, information, knowledge, wisdom in a central place that was searchable accessible to all um, so we could, you know, cross search uh, 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 across different silos of, of content, whether that's analytics or survey findings or usability tests or, um, you know, customer interviews, uh, data that we were pulling from the app in terms of common pathways and so forth. So our approach was to stream all of that into Evernote because, you know, with Evernote, there's this secret email address that you can mail stuff to, um, and it 
you know, you can use a hashtag in the subject line to direct it to a particular notebook. The search is really good. You can tag. Um, it's not a perfect solution. It's definitely not built for what we were doing. But it was an off-the-shelf database that I could get the whole company on, and we could uh, collect this stuff together. Uh, since our experimentation, which, you know, it wasn't perfect. There were definitely some things that, that were problematic, but I see companies using Confluence. Um, I, I know that the uh, uh, digital services for United Kingdom, um, they use uh, or they were using WordPress for a long time for similar reasons that you could email stuff in and it would go into the database and you could search it and pull it out. Um, so there are lots of different ways to do this. Um, but, uh, you know, the key is you want to have all the wisdom in one place to learn and share that with other people. Yeah, no question. And I'm kind of curious to hear, you know, despite uh, the, the the limitations of any given tool, the central idea is the same, right? As you said, sharing and storing this information all in one spot. You know, I'm really curious, how did that come out in practice, right? So um, I think it's... I think it's a fun analogy to say this felt a little bit like Groundhog's Day where, you know, you wake up, I get the same question asked, I try to give the same answer. Well, all of a sudden, now you've got this place where you shouldn't have to do that or you don't have to do it the same way. I mean, what did that look like and what was successful and, you know, where did you feel like there was still room for improvement on that? So what was successful was that, um, you know, it was data for everyone and everyone's data. Um, participation was key getting a lot of people to share what they had. So there was a ground game, you know, walking around and talking to people, hearing what they're learning, what sort of research was happening. Because, you know, when you're in a company that uh, where research is part of the culture, it's not uh, ghettoized. It's not in one single team. It's happening in a lot of places. And that was the case at, at MailChimp um, at, when I was there. Um, so getting all of that data into one place, that was something we were successful at. And then... Um, easy in, easy out, uh, easy for people to contribute on a regular basis. If there was a way for us to set up recurring dumps, like with a cron job or with Google analytics, you can say, send me a report on this page or this traffic or this, you know, device usage, mobile usage every Monday morning at 8am, send it to this Evernote email address. Um, so if there's a way to automate, like stream in the data, we did. And if it was manual, then we just made sure people had clear instructions how to do that. Um, and then, um, you know, the uh, e easy for everyone to search. And the fact that we could search on mobile was actually kind of nice too. Um, you search on desktop, tablet, mobile, um, and the OCR is really great. Um, character recognition inside of a, an image. So if you put a screenshot from a survey, uh, from SurveyMonkey, it would read the characters inside that image. Um, and so the, the most successful, most exciting thing was seeing colleagues ask a question of this database. It's like going to the Oracle and saying, uh, you know, how, how important is uh, Android usage to, uh, to our customer base right now? And seeing results from a usability test from uh, you know, broad market research about Android usage um, seeing uh, you know uh, usability tests customer interviews um, 
analytics, data, all kinds of different things come up, survey results in one search. So different types of data, quantitative and qualitative, showing up in the same search. That was tremendously powerful. And some types of, of data that we were collecting would be feedback from customers where there was an email address that they could just send us, email us feedback and say, I wish you would do this. Um, and when we find the, those results, we've got email addresses where we've got a person to talk to on the phone. So seeing colleagues do that, not by going to the research team, but just doing it on their own and then making a better product that's more informed because of access to that, that data, that was, that was um, the best thing about, about what we had discovered. Sure. The, the, the thing that was, you know, you asked about what didn't work, um, you've got to clean that stuff after a while because stuff gets a little old and you don't know what's relevant. Um, and you also have to continually, that ground game is not a one-time thing. You got to continue to talk to people and get them to contribute. Sure. Well, that was actually the thing that came to mind as you were discussing this. So it, it sounded less about process and a lot more sort of organic and ad hoc and natural. Uh, as you mentioned, people, they, they visited the Oracle when they felt like they had a question to be answered. And that was that. But then it's interesting to hear that you ran into the problem of maybe data cleanliness or relevance. Yep. Uh, because of that very fact, it was more you know organic or natural. Yeah, and and was most of the time there were very few instances where there was uh, a data cleanliness issue because people were contributing the wrong things because it was easy for us to separate that out into different notebooks. Um, it was more that there was data in there and you had to look at the date it was contributed. So if it was two years old, that might not actually be you know. Uh, it's it's not up to date and it's not relevant anymore because we've already fixed that particular issue. Sure. And how did you de how did you go about determining that? Right. So you've got this all in the same spot, but how did you determine what was not relevant anymore, other than date, perhaps? I don't have a good answer. We never did find a good answer. It was sort of ad hoc, um, and so that that was something that we needed process around, but tedious, very tedious process. I think that. In an ideal world, if I were making this product, I would probably have some sort of like little warning message that is associated with different data that's that's a little crusty. It's a little crusty. <laughs> warning, this data is crusty. Don't, yeah, don't make decisions used based by. on this. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, well, so then, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot here I want to unpack, but the thing that keeps coming to my mind, Aaron, is how did you get people to participate in this, right? Because it sounds like this was not just the design and or research team contributing you know, insights and research data and feedback. So was this, was it really as simple as if you build it, they will come or, you know, how was there more encouragement that you had to get people uh, or you had to convince people to really contribute to this, to make it as powerful as it could be? So the way that we got people to participate, I think, is the same way you get anyone to participate in a large organization, and that is with a story of winning. Um, if people see a winning solution, they want to get on board. So it's not enough just to dump all the stuff there and expect people to go you know, dig around and, and look for things. But we had a story early on. Um, we basically prototyped the process that... We fed all the um, 
customer feedback emails, which used to go directly to my Gmail inbox and just crushed me. Um, and then I built a Gmail filter and pushed all of that over to Evernote so I could, you know, just tuck it away. I didn't know what I was going to do with it, uh, but at least not throw it away. Um, you know, I worked very closely with the CEO at MailChimp and on product direction and, um, you know, ideas. And he asked me a question. I don't remember what the question was, but it was like about a particular feature. And was this worth adding to the roadmap soon? Uh, was there like a groundswell of people that, that needed this? And so I went to the Oracle and I did a search and I found 44 people talking about that particular issue. Um, and I got, you know, there's qualitative feedback there. They were telling their story, what they needed, why, and there was an email address. And so he asked me that question in an email. Uh, it was probably five minutes later. I responded, you know, with, with a, a bit of an answer. These are some quotes that we're hearing from our customers. Um, I see 44 people have talked about this. Uh, and he was like, whoa, okay, that's interesting. How, how do you know that? Um, and so this story, which led to, um, you know, the, 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 the ending of the story is that it led to a more informed, faster rollout of a new feature. Um, and so sharing that story with other people, engineers, um, QA people, product people, whomever, uh, made them see, okay, there's, there's possibility here. Um, the other thing is that, um, you know, when a team has a good reputation within a company of, for providing value, making the case for participation in something is, is easier to come by. So we did have that going for us that we had done a lot of research in the past and informed a number of other product um, launches. So, um, you know, they, they knew that we weren't peddling uh, uh, fantasy. Sure. Well, and in some ways, one begets another, right? When you show the value of something, people instinctively tend to want more of that thing. That's right. So then it's, yeah, so then it's a little bit easier for you to say, well, look, I know exactly how you can help with that. <laughs> yeah. Right? And um, so you bring up the conversation you had with your CEO and, you know, the, the position you were in, I think, affords itself to having had that conversation. I can imagine there's a number of folks listening to this and say, yeah, but I'm not maybe in a leadership position to be able to have that chat with a CEO or a VP or even, right? But you did mention developers. And this is actually a topic that has become more and more important, uh, particularly for me and even Joseph, because of the relationship we have and how we build our product, you know, getting developers to care more and act on user research. I'm kind of curious did that come up at MailChimp or anywhere for that matter? And, you know, how, how did you go about that? Yeah, so there's always the, the question, especially when, when qualitative uh, research is presented. Um, okay, but that's just one guy, right, who said that. Well, actually, there are other people who said that. All right, well, that's five people. That's not a big sample size. Therefore, that must not be relevant. Um, but... Uh, so, so they're thinking about quantitative data and they're thinking, okay, if I have 15,000 data points, that is a sampling. I can do some, some mathematics to say that, you know, the, the, um, 
you know, we've got a pretty solid um, sense that this is uh, a low margin of error here. This is representative of what's happening. So the, the trouble, though, is, you know, quantitative data only tells us what's happening. It doesn't tell us why. And so I think that, you know, if you're, if you're in a position where you're having a hard time convincing developers, um, people who are quantitative in their thinking, business people, um, coupling qualitative findings with quantitative is key to show this is what is happening and uh, having qualitative uh, data that says this is why it's happening. Uh, these are the, 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 this is the voice of the customer. If you can actually let them hear recordings of the voice of the customer, that's ideal. Um, but coupling the two is, is a really uh, important thing for, for being convincing. Yeah, so I was curious about that too, even with the example that you gave in the conversation you had with your CEO. That So you mentioned, hey, 44 people are talking about this. But obviously, you and I both know there's deeper meaning to what those 44 people said and why that was important. I'm curious, talk to me about how you've gotten to that next level of understanding, because it, it sounds very interesting to do this sort of, you know, we started this conversation in terms of a research ops type thing, but, but knowing that there should be a central place for everything you've learned from your customers, that's great. And starting with the numbers, well, we have a lot of data about X, but then understanding what that means and why it's important, right? Talk to me about how you've infused that understanding then into, into those conversations. I, I, I would argue that it's not enough to simply say, well, hey, 44 people are talking about this thing. We should do something about that. There's, there's 44 people talking about this thing or need this thing. And here's what that means, right? So the part of here's what that means, you know, what, when and where does that become part of the conversation. So it does, was it that the 44 people talking about that, you know, sparked curiosity with your CEO and then you went and dug back into that and tried to help him understand, you know, what that meant and why it was important. So in, in our case, we had a very specific question that we were asking, um, you know, and, and we were trying to get some color or some additional insight into this is the problem space. Is this a significant problem or a small problem? Uh, seeing 44 people, uh, we can, you know, we've got some people to talk to. And then talking to those particular people, if it's, if it's a matter of like there's a deficiency um, and you just, when you talk to those people, hearing how acute the challenge is um, can give some signal of, is this worth our time and energy? Um, extrapolating out how, like connecting that to scale um, that's where connecting quantitative and qualitative is, is important that to the degree that you can, if there's a way that you could say, okay, this problem they're having where, you know, they're hitting an edge over here. Um, can we look at some logs and see like how many people hit that edge? Is there a way to, to look at a pathway, um, a behavior thing that, um, you know, we, we're just trying to connect behavior and motivation. Motivation is the part that I am particularly drawn to and interested in because it is the, the source of truth of, of, you know, it gives us the insight that helps us see what the next product is, the, the refinement is, uh, what to, what to work on, um, next. Um, and the behavior is sort of, you know, it's data, it's, um, it's, it's information. It's not necessarily knowledge and wisdom. 
Um, and wisdom being at the top of the pyramid, below that is knowledge, uh, below that is information, and below that is data. Data is just, you know, here's a big number. Okay, great. That number is about, you know, page views. Oh, okay, well, that's a piece of information. The knowledge is that a high number of page views might mean people are interested in this thing. Uh, the wisdom around that might be that uh, we are writing about or uh, solving a problem that nobody else is solving, and we're doing that in a way that is, is unique. Um, so trying to create a, a full story that connects those things um, can help us make better decisions. That's great. That's absolutely perfect. And I think the example you gave too, I mean, it really encapsulates what it is that we're trying to do in design, design research and making better product decisions, right? Is it's not enough simply to say 44 people are talking about a thing. There's not much you can do to make a decision with off of that, yeah. right? And then even knowing just an additional piece of information, as you call it, about that thing isn't quite enough. You need to get to that wisdom. Mm -hmm. Knowledge may be enough, mm -hmm. but wisdom is really ideal, right? It's it's an understanding of what happened, why, and the details around that, but more importantly, what that then means to both you know, your customers and your business, yep. because then that informs a better decision. And all of this, again, please keep me honest, all of this comes back to this place where you don't get to the place of achieving that understanding if you are not consistently talking with your customers and collecting this information to make sense of it. That's right. That customer connection to go back to, to bring our conversation full circle. Um, it is the common thread that makes, uh, you know, separates the good from, from the mediocre. Awesome. Okay, well, we're running up on time here, and I want to be respectful of that for you, Aaron. One of the things I'm curious, we started asking this recently in our show, kind of at the end, is, you know, if people were listening to this entire episode and they had temporary amnesia <laughs> and they can only remember one thing, what would, what would you want that to be for them? What's the one important thing you'd want somebody to take away from this conversation? you know, this idea of customer centricity and the power that it has to, um, make a company successful. It's, um, you know, what, what we at Envision have seen is the secret sauce at so many companies like Google, like Slack, who are using their own product on a regular basis. So they inherently have a close connection to the customer. Um, but they go beyond just the, the walls of their buildings, um, to, you know, go visit customers and, and learn from them. Um, you know, customer centricity at um, Herman Miller, um, a company that has a long history of design and, and um, setting the pace for what classic design is, uh, you would think that from that there would come a lot of, uh, you know, arrogance or certainty in, in uh, their understanding of design and how to do that well, but yet... They stay humble and they continue to talk to their customers and evolve. Uh, so customer centricity really staying connected to uh, the behaviors and the motivations of your customers um, will unlock a lot of doors. Wonderful. I love that answer. Okay, Aaron, this has been a 
an enlightening and broad-reaching chat, which I had no doubt that it would. And so we're very grateful to have you on to have uh, been a guest and talk about all those things. As we're sort of wrapping up here, I'm curious, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience about any of your recent work or Envision um, or anything that's important to you that you want to talk about before we wrap up? Um, yeah, I, I, if, if this stuff is interesting to people um, I w- and you want to go deeper, I would recommend that you check out designbetter.co. Um, and that is the, the mothership of all the things that we've been writing um, and publishing as of late. Um, so at designbetter.co, we've got a number of books that we've been publishing. Uh, some of them I have written, my colleagues have written, but we also work with um, incredible people in the industry as well that, you know, at uh, amazing companies doing cool stuff. Um, the recent book on design systems, the Design Systems Handbook, uh, written by people like uh, uh, Roy Stanfield at Airbnb, Gina Ann, who uh, led the team at uh, Salesforce that created Lightning, um, Katie Seiler Miller at Etsy. Uh, Diana Mounter at uh, GitHub and our own Marco Suarez, who's working on uh, design systems at Envision. Uh, that's an incredible book. It's a great place to start. Um, also, there's a podcast there. Uh, we do have a, uh, the Design Better podcast with uh, some interesting guests, people like David Kelly, uh, who co-founded um, IDEO, and he founded the, the Stanford D School, um, and lots of other interesting folks. So, um that's worth checking out. And we have workshops. Um, so workshops on things like design systems, design sprints. Uh, we just did one on strategic narratives in San Francisco uh, with Michael Margolis. Um, we work with some super talented um, folks who run uh, some, some pretty great workshops. So we'd love to see you at one of those. Fantastic. Well, there's no shortage of awesome resources that Aaron and his team at Envision are putting forward, and we will be sure to include a link to that in the show notes, as well as a few other things we mentioned in this episode. Uh, Once again, Aaron Walter, Vice President of Design Education at Envision. And this was a fantastic conversation, Aaron. Thank you again so much for being part. Thanks so much for having me. All right, everybody, we will see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode, Consider leaving us a rating on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to our podcast. And also, you can fill out our podcast survey where you can let us know if someone awesome that we should have on the show and even tell us about the things you would want to hear about, topics that are interesting for you. You can check that out in the show notes or on our website. Thanks for listening to Aurelius Podcast, talking about product strategy and design strategy. We are the first platform of its kind to help you solve the right problems for your customers and your business and build products and services that truly matter. You can check us out at AureliusLab.com. That is www.aureliuslab.com. You can check us out on Twitter at AureliusLab and Instagram Aurelius Lab. We'll see you next time.